Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb. Today's episode is with Greg Myers, EVP and Chief Digital and Technology Officer at Bristol-Myers Squibb, also known as BMS. He is joined by A16Z Bio and Health General Partner, Jorge Conde. Together, they talk about how AI could transform drug discovery and development in a large biopharma company and how a company might have to adapt to harness AI, modalities they're excited about, and Greg's do's and don'ts for startups looking to partner with a company like BMS. Let's get started. So, Greg, thank you for joining us today on BioEats World. Uh, we really appreciate you having you here. Thanks for having me. I think it's helpful for, for listeners to understand sort of the, the scope and scale of BMS. And so let me take a quick snapshot shot at it, and then you'll correct everything I've said wrong or missed. So this is a company that, that will do something on the order of $40 billion in revenue, $50 billion in revenue in a given year. Yep. Uh, spends about $10 billion in, in R&D annually has 50 uh, molecules that's under development at any given point in time, spanning across 40 disease areas, has something like 30 commercialized products that are available uh, on the market for patients. How do you see your role within you know, such an incredible and incredibly uh, scaled organization? Jorge, in addition to everything that you just said, over the last three years, we've launched nine new medicines. I mean, three last year alone, and we've got one of the youngest pipelines in the industry. I mean, a lot of the innovation in life sciences has really never been more exciting. And a lot of that sort of moved more towards personalized, more complicated sort of medicine. So my role in the company is really to try to leverage innovation both outside the company, but also what's going on inside the company, marry the two things together to find ways to bring more medicines to more patients faster by accelerating our business and, and accelerating our pipeline. You're Chief Digital and Technology Officer for Bristol-Myers Squibb. So let's parse that out if we could. What falls in sort of the digital side of, of, the, of the house for you and what falls into the technology side of the house for you as it relates to a pharmaceutical company like BMS? I think if you, I don't know that they're really totally distinct from one another. I guess the way that I often think about it is I'm responsible for the core IT for the company. So everything that makes the company run from a technology perspective, I think technology is no longer just the remit of just you know, taking orders, shipping orders, closing the books, but it's increasingly starting to affect the way a company like ours research develops and commercializes its medicine. And it's certainly, um, you know, my view in the next 20, 25 years, you know, molecules alone will not be enough, right? They'll increasingly be this marriage of, of digital wrappers in terms of way patients are diagnosed, treated, and monitored. And that will sort of be coupled very much together with therapies, whereas today they're, they're really pr pretty somewhat unique from one another. Let's actually walk through this, this sort of value chain if we could uh, together. So let's start on the discovery side of things. 
if there's an area that uh, obviously an incredible amount of investment goes into uh, for pharmaceutical companies, this is into R&D, right, to research and development. So let's talk a bit about how you see and how the organization sees uh, technology broadly defined, whether it's you know software or other technologies, can and are impacting the way we discover new medicines. Yeah, discover and design. So if you think about chemistry and physics, we've had pretty good physical models about how that works. If I mix sugar and sulfuric acid together, I can very accurately predict how much heat will be produced from that experiment. But with biology, it's, it's not so simple. And I think what we're starting to see is AI really produces a lot of promise in being able to model a lot of the really complicated things that go on in biology. I mean, if you think about uh, the human bodies, there's, there's 40 trillion cells in the human body. There's one trillion molecule in each of those cells. That's, if you add that up, about seven octillion atoms. And furthermore, there's about 10 to the 60th uh, possible chemical entities that can be produced uh, because if any one of those atoms is out of place, it could cause, cure, or prevent a disease. And then you have this large chemical space that has to come together where you're really trying to hit very specific biological targets and you're trying to avoid a bunch of other targets. And so that, that is a, it's a computational problem. And if you look at the history of, of drug development, particularly in research, you know, it's largely been a lot of trial and error. What we're really hoping is that software and machine learning and, and deep learning in particular are ways to sort of try to operationalize some of the serendipity of what we're, what we're used to seeing. And so since drug design is just so different from clear-cut engineering, and you've got the prevalence of error and nonlinearity, you have all these seemingly random, random events, I think the question is, will uh, deep learning you know, be to biology what uh, mathematics is to f- physics and chemistry? Does BMS expect that that's going to have an impact in the near term on how we discover and design drugs, or is that something where the impact will be felt over the longer term? It's already been felt. Uh, we, we could look at when we started incorporating primary predictions, so in, in small molecule development, which would be just sort of chemi- chemical-based drugs, uh, we began a few years ago starting to incorporate machine learning to try to predict whether or not a certain chemical profile would have the bioreactivity you're hoping for. And when we implemented that, you can see a huge spike in terms of hit rate. So we've, we're already convinced. In fact, a lot of what we're doing now is really trying to scale up those to many, many more experiments within the small molecule space, and then trying to translate that more into proteins and, and large molecules, which is a significantly more difficult problem. But I mean, we're already pretty convinced uh, this is going to be really the new way that all drug companies will be doing research. I mean, I think we can certainly foresee a point where scientists are not actually doing anything in a wet lab unless there is an actual predictive model that suggests it has a high probability of success. And is that, in your mind, does that become a discipline that will need to be native to a pharmaceutical company uh, like a BMS? Or is that something that you think will be accessed through partner, like a capability that gets access through, through partnership? Both. In fact, we have over 200 partnerships, including some several equity positions with other companies that are, you know, really come from more of the in silico, you know, sort of pure play sort of business. And we've learned a ton from them. We, we do think, though, that a combination through uh, joint development programs, and so we've got a number, number of them going on with, with some of the uh, you know, sort of startups and, and companies that are in this space. But we're also building up our own capability because there's a lot of things that are earlier in the pipeline that we're not entirely sure you know, whether they'll work or not. Uh, whereas there's other areas where through partnerships, we have 
actually found a lead that's very interesting that we may be trying to optimize. So, so yeah, we're, we're pretty much going to find innovation wherever we can find it through partnerships, but also when I mean, this does become the core, uh, it has to become a core skill set for, you know, how we do research in the future as well. Uh, given how quickly the, the sort of cycles of innovation are going uh, when it comes to all things AI related, how does a large organization digest that, ingest that, keep up with that to make sure that you remain on, on the cutting edge? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because I, I think if you look historically, you have to look at the, the mentality of, of why experiments get done in labs. I mean, typically uh, you do an experiment because you're trying to get an answer to a question and then the results, the data, the exhaust of that experiment just kind of goes into the ether and it, it really doesn't matter all that much except for you know, what the result was. Did you prove or disprove what your hypothesis was? But if you think really more of the power of, of machine learning, what you can imagine is the sum of all the experiments are like dots on a page. And as they get connected together retrospectively, you, you number one, want to make sure that you never run the same experiment twice. That's not a great use of resources. But, but also, you, know, you get new insights. And we get those through academic partnerships and and, and other groups that we work with and thought leaders and so on. So you want to be able to go back retrospectively and actually use that data to, to be scannable versus it just being sort of exhaust that comes off of a, as a necessary byproduct of an experiment. So I think this idea of making sure the data that comes off of everything we do as it's being captured and also designed to be interpreted by machines, mm-hmm. whereas today, you know, these things are sitting in databases designed to be interrogated by humans. I mean, I think that's a huge sort of shift in terms of the way that we store data, how we store data, the presentation layer, how it's accessible. And so there's just a lot of infrastructure work we're doing behind the scenes to really sort of equip more of these kind of semi-autonomous and autonomous uh, sorts of in silico experiments. We've started to see that shift uh, very meaningfully, right? Where it's, you, we've gone from let's repurpose, you know, legacy data and see if we can make it usable for machine learning to let's actually um, design experiments and generate data structures that are ideal for uh, machine learning applications. And that, that is a very noticeable and important shift. And it's really interesting to see that an organization, you know, as large as BMS, as established as BMS, is also uh, intentionally making that shift. Sometimes you, you, you kind of have to do things that you wouldn't normally do because it's, it's what a, a system or a predictive model needs to see, right? So there could be a, an example where an algorithm would say that you need to put this compound together. And, and any scientist that knows what they're doing is going to say that that is definitely going to fail. And that's just so counterintuitive to maybe historically what we've done, which is trying to follow the, the human intuition and, and, and a lot of the science. I mean, the first three steps of the scientific method or more, more or less follow your gut, right? If you were to summarize them. So this is a big, I think, a big culture shift that we're seeing that is, um, is really underway. So to pick on a specific use case for artificial intelligence, where do you see generative AI going? First of all, it's very interesting what we're seeing happening with large language models. And I think I'm sure you, you as, as well as we are and all your listeners are just how impressed, how well generalized models are outperforming specialized models in different areas. And, and we've already made a lot of strides in, in computational pharmacology and drug discovery. But I think if you look maybe just for example of proteomics, I mean, if you look at the mRNA vaccine, I mean, that, that is a totally new modality that... Um, COVID brought us that I think has a lot of potential. Uh, things like protein degraders, which are something that we're working on. We, we, we're the only company with two cell therapies. You have gene therapy. So if you look at something as simple as a protein, proteins are a lot like the human language. 
they can be naturally representative of strings and letters. So if you take, for example, uh, protein motifs and domains, I mean, they, they act a lot like the functional building blocks of a language, right? So they're akin to words, phrases, and sentences in a language. And so, I mean, you can look at things like AlphaFold, where they're sort of validating models of, of existing protein structures that might otherwise take years and years to develop. But this is the idea that if, if you can really be able to predict how molecules that have not been, have been synthesized before, how they're likely to interact with one another is, is really very interesting. And, and if you can take the analogy of are proteins a lot like a language, this could really unlock a lot of new uh, ideas in terms of how you would use, use compute. And if, if you look at an example of a protein degradation, which is a sort of a promising new approach for, for drug discovery, it, it's basically selectively targets disease-causing proteins, right, rather than the inhibition or activation that you would get in normal small molecule drugs. The challenge is that these things are very, very highly selective for a specific target protein. And what you're really trying to do is you've got to get really, really precise in targeting the protein that you want. We are currently using AI pretty heavily in our protein degrader program where it's really been very helpful in helping us sort through, you know, different types of designs in terms of, you know, how best to attack and what to experiment on. Shifting away from the digital world, let's go back to the molecular world, the, the wet and squishy stuff. Do you have a favorite modality that is going to break out in the next decade? You know, I think we see a lot of benefit in, I mean, there's many, uh, too many to name, actually. And we've got a lot of different shots on goals going on. I think we're pretty excited around in the area of oncology. If you take things like immunotherapy, I mean, we're, we're really leaders in immuno-oncology. But if you, if you link the ability to activate the body's own immune system and you can couple it with ways of, uh, of altering or perturbating the, uh, the tumor's uh, microenvironment, those two things together actually become powerful. So I think there's a number of things that are already on the market that when used in combination with some of these new modalities, you have multiple ways of being able to attack uh, the disease biology. And so, I mean, if you look at inflammation as a great example, you usually typically think about immunology as being the domain of cancer. And I think that's true, but I mean, inf inflammation has so many roles to play in cardiology and neurology. And so I think we're just beginning to see some of the some of the ability to translate some of these things like immunotherapy into totally different um, approaches. And we've got a lot of molecules in the pipeline looking to study that. And if there's a one area of the industry that has been at least historically ripe with failure and challenge has been that translation from, you know, preclinical models into, into human clinical trials, where do you see technology helping to improve the odds? beyond, you know, just being able to design better compounds as we were just talking about. Yeah, well, what, once, I mean, once obviously something gets into development, you've already sort of proven the proof of concept out. What you're, what you're really trying to do is to understand the safety and efficacy and the risk benefit profile, right, in, in large populations. And I think just in general, what you're seeing in, in drug development is a shift towards sort of smaller patient population and more specialized disease areas. Uh, so that means you have more trials with fewer people that are actually harder to reach. And, and I think that there's also a huge movement afoot in trying to get more diverse populations. If you, if you look at where most of the clinical trials in the U.S. are done, I mean, it's going to be in a handful of cities and, and they're typically mostly white, mostly male, you know, and living in places like Houston and New York City. And, and I think that when you look at many of these other disease areas, you've, you, you've got to really start, particularly as they get more selective, you, you really need a more heterogeneous patient population. So, you know, we're also doing things, for example, uh, where we're measuring biomarkers within the study as well. So what you may be looking at is coupling 
uh, data science and machine learning and computer vision, when you couple that along with the normal things that you would do in a clinical trial, I think that allows you to better understand uh, the pathophysiology of the disease, how different patient cohorts will behave uh, and respond in different ways. We've been talking about personalized medicine for 25 years, but I think we're finally at the, at the point where we're finally starting to get the models and computational capacity to elucidate how different subsets of patients will perform differently. And that's, I think, a big deal. Do you think that the ability to find and enroll the right patients uh, to the right clinical trials, is that largely a technology problem or is there something more structural that, that needs to be addressed? And there's a people process and technology component to all, all of these things. I mean, I don't think it's mostly a technology problem. I think technology can, in some ways, compensate for some weaknesses in the system. If, if you live in New York City, it's a lot easier to get on the clinical trial than if you live in, in, in the Arkansas Delta, right? But I do think technology does create the ability to extend and expand the reach. Are we to the point where wearables are now a given for many uh, clinical trials, or is that something that's still far off? Probably somewhere in the middle. I think we're really probably in the uh, the first or second inning there. We're but we're very excited about this approach. I mean, I think if you take a look at oncology, maybe we'll start there. If you're you're a cancer patient, you're gonna you know you're gonna be on on average two or three lines of failed therapy before you find something that works. And if you're if you're a lung cancer patient, you, you may not have that much time to live, right? So the ability to really try to discern the specific phenotypic traits of a patient and try to figure out you know, what's actually going on behind the scenes is hugely beneficial. So we, we for example, have been spending the last year or so working on uh, an AI tool that can take a 12-lead ECG. And from there, uh, there are features of a T-wave on an ECG that w- is indicative of uh, a certain type of disease called uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it's a relatively hard-to-detect disease um, it's pretty underdiagnosed in general. Patients could spend years going through a labyrinth of misdiagnosis to get it. And, and, and here we, from a simple 12-lead ECG, can in the, the high 90th percentile of sensitivity be able to detect the signature of this disease. And so these are the kinds of things where there are huge breakthroughs in terms of being able to help physicians you know, sort of use their version of a co-pilot to figure out what patients might benefit in which situations, what might be going on, particularly in these smaller patient cohorts where maybe you're not in an academic center. Now, those aren't wearables, but there's other areas of wearables that I think if you think about hospital at home being sort of a sticky trend that came out of COVID, and I think that's absolutely going to be the case. We think the idea of moving some of the patient monitoring around safety events or scale up and dosing, I mean, these kinds of things can be probably done uh, more at home over time, but you really need to have high quality endpoint data from patients to make sure that, that, that they're being monitored appropriately and you can get a good sense of, you know, of how they're responding to different types of therapy. And that's a great example of, you know, ways that AI functions as a co-pilot to help all doctors essentially practice as, you know, the best diagnostician as they can, yep. which is a, a pretty, it's a remarkable advance. So given where you sit from your perch, Greg, uh, you mentioned the word digital health. I'd love to hear how you define digital health from, from your vantage point. Because there's lots of definitions out there for what digital health means. I'd love to know what the, uh, the, you know, the chief digital and technology officer of BMS yeah. means when he says digital health. Yeah, so we're, when we say digital health, we're really talking about trying to achieve a step change in the way patients are diagnosed, treated, and monitored. And, and as a company in the biopharma sector, that's just something that we're usually a few steps removed from. 
if you've had anyone in your family that has been through maybe a cancer diagnosis journey, I mean, you, you can realize really what a labyrinth it can be. And a lot of it just comes down to the, to the lack of continuous or integrated care and uh, you know, just different people looking at different things. And I think digital tools really do help fill the seams you know, left by some of that fragmentation in care. And for us, there's probably three, there, there's more than three, but I think there's probably three key areas that we think are, are really interesting. One is in AI biosignals, right? So, I mean, a significant number of biosignals, you know, are and will be digitized. We talked about wearables and- And the, the ECG example is one of that, right? Yeah. One of those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, hospital at home. Uh, again, I think COVID proved that more healthcare can be delivered remotely. Not only is that trend sticky, but but we think that that's going to you know improve adherence a lot. I mean, if you can actually you know create convenience and efficiency for patients, that that plays a huge role in their ability to stay on therapy and get better outcomes than if they have to drive an hour and a half to go to a clinic for a routine checkup or something. Um, and then I think sort of similarly, when you start looking at wearables themselves, which is looking at specific biomarkers uh, that really can help you better understand how disease and treatment sort of evolve differently in different types of patients with different types of biology. So these are, are areas that in general, I mean, we're very bullish about what they are, but it is tricky because obviously normally in, in the pharmaceutical world, you know, we're focused on just delivering a molecule, but I mm -hmm. think increasingly we see a lot of need in really getting more precise about getting the right drug to the right patient sooner. And if they're not the right fit for that, making sure they're not on that drug. And, um, you know, this is something that we're seeing as, as being a trend that's here to say. And we're, like I said earlier, we're, we're finally getting to the point that you have good computational models, but also the compute platforms themselves, where you're really starting to be able to better understand uh, how all this works in real populations versus what you were able to do only on the clinical trials. I love that framing because I would say one of the things that I, I find fascinating about the industry is all of this incredible effort goes in discovering and developing drugs. Once they are shown to be safe and effective, it's always been remarkable to me how challenging that last mile problem remains for this industry. The last mile problem here being, how do we make sure that we get the right drug to the right patient? So let's talk a little bit about that last mile problem, if we could, because I, I feel like you have a unique vantage point on this, given what you just articulated. You know, there are sort of, a, in my mind, like three core challenges in the last mile problem. One is the piping, the distribution, making sure that the, the, the medicine gets out to where it needs to get to. The second one is, we'll call it commercialization, right? But how do you get the right messages out there to physicians so they're aware of, of which patients are, are appropriate for a new medicine? And how do you educate patients to make sure that, that they're aware of a new medicine and things that are appropriate for them? And there's lots of ways that commer commercialization and education happens. And then the third one, if I'm being overly simplistic, is the access. Like, how do you ensure that patients, you know, are ad adherent, can pay for them? Where do you see technology sort of having outsized impact across those, those various axes? So I think there's a lot of things at play here. First of all, it is, clinical practice is hard to change. And you have many new modalities that will be coming out, whether that's cell therapy, gene therapy, mRNA, protein degraders. Many of these things are becoming actually, quite honestly, more difficult to administer. Mm -hmm. They're more highly sensitive. So I think technology is, is definitely going to play a role in terms of how practi practitioners can find ways to figure out what's best for what people. I think these EMR systems that have been around for a while are still viewed largely as an inconvenience by a lot of practitioners. And, and you wonder whether large language models 
really create the opportunity to unleash the, the real potential of what's inside them to really help understand who can benefit in one way. So I think that's one trend that's worth uh, definitely understanding. If you get a patient on therapy, then what you really need to try to do is to, do, to get as early of a read as possible as whether or not you're getting the therapeutic response and that you're not getting the adverse responses. And I think a lot of the monitoring is going to help with that. So I think over time, the ability to monitor patients and not only predict and select for who's going to work on which therapy, but also trying to figure out how to get people off of therapy that, that isn't working. Or in many cases, you know, if you have really good ability to detect biomarker signals, things that might be perceived as later lines of therapy that are super efficacious, but can create problems for certain populations of people, you know, you can de-risk some of that and, and you can give uh, maybe things like cell therapy um, a little bit earlier lines of treatment, which could be very effective for certain types of patients. It's just the problem in the system today is it's very hard for the decision tree of who is likely and not likely to respond. And it becomes this real dance between the payers and, and the practitioners around what's going to work for this specific patient. And I think to the degree that you can de-risk all of that and have higher probability of success with a lower chance of, of, of problems, I mean, I think that's, that's win, win, win really all the way around. Where do you see the role of BMS in the ecosystem versus technology companies that are looking to develop these digital solutions? We talked a little bit at the beginning about how you partner, uh, but where do you see that BMS can be more effective deploying these things versus sort of standalone healthcare technology or digital health companies? I think this is a big partnership ecosystem. And this is, this is too complicated of a problem that really no one, this is not a winner take all industry like you might see in other industries. So biopharma companies have more expertise uh, in specific disease areas and disease biology than pretty much anybody else does because this is what we do for a living in certain areas. You obviously have big academic institutions that are really experts in how continuous care can really unfold in a way where you're using these sort of co-pilot technologies. You have the high-tech companies that are releasing these products like large language models that are really the, the raw ingredients necessary to do all of these things. I think the whole industry will have to come together. I, I don't think it's one group running away with it. I think, I think every part of the industry has a unique sort of role and contribution to make. And I think if we're able to sort of find a way to work together to uh, improve healthcare, that's I mean, a great thing. I mean, there's not going to be many more doctors than there are today in 20 years, but there'll be twice as many cancer patients in 20 years than there is today. So really, I think we have to almost view this as you know, almost like climate change in terms of, of, a, of an emergency where we really do have to find ways to achieve breakthroughs by coming together you know, as an industry across the swim lanes, because really just the existing model of healthcare delivery is just not, it's not really scalable. So if I'm an aspiring entrepreneur in this space and broadly defined the, the healthcare technology or digital health space, and I'm developing, whether it's a, a, an application, a platform to impact any one of the various aspects uh, that we've just talked about, whether it's discovery or development or the distribution of these therapies. And I, and I want to partner with a BMS. You know, what advice do you, do you give me as, a, as an aspiring uh, founder or entrepreneur uh, trying to tackle some of these very, very hard problems? When I meet with a, a lot of the startups, I always look for companies that are focused on solving a real world problem. I mean, sometimes you have solutions that are looking for problems. And, and that really is a struggle. I mean, this is, this is an industry that will not adopt something unless it is, you know, really 10x better 
than the way things are historically done. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you'll see the mistakes that get made is either the solutions looking for problems or you have companies that are actually more like features. And, you, you know, if you think about- That are incremental. Yeah, in some way. you can't ask a physician who, you know, the average, this is, these are US statistics, but the average doctor's appointment in the US is about 15 minutes. You know, five minutes of the patient talking, five minutes of the doctor talking, and four or five minutes of, of keying things in and, and other things going on. There just isn't room there to go to five or six different portals for different things. And so I think you, you either see trying to build a company around what should be a feature that's living somewhere else. And I think it's a lot of times it's the translation into really understanding what happens in the clinic. So it's not just understanding a patient journey, but it's really understanding how the patient and physician interact. And if you're out there trying to find a way to, whether it's take cost out of the system or, you know, whether it's trying to make a physician more productive or a, a patient more empowered, I mean, those are all great things. When you get into, you know, more of how a biopharmaceutical company like ours works, I mean, I think we will continue looking for innovators around a lot of AI tools, particularly in, in drug dis discovery and design and biophysics. Uh, we're very excited about a number of startups that are in the, the, the digital pathology space. I think that's a very exciting mm -hmm. area. Uh, and then, of course, anything that allows us to shave time off of our clinical trials is great, right? Whether that's one example is we're experimenting with generative AI to try to develop digital protocols for our clinical trials, which is very time consuming. And if you write them in the wrong way, you could be too exclusive in terms of who goes into your trial. So I think there's a lot of really cool companies that um, if they can focus on either a really good niche area that solves a specific problem, I think that's really great. The problem sometimes is companies are, are either sort of a jack of all trades, a master of none, or they've sort of gone too deep in one sort of side area that really needs to dovetail with something else. So I think it's the product market fit here is really a bit unusual uh, because it, remember, it's the only industry where the consumer, the customer, and the payer are all different people and, and they don't always have uh, incentives that are aligned. And so you, you really have to pay attention to, you know, what is going to be the thing that is going to get everybody in the boat because changing traditional practices is pretty difficult. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that because, you know, my, my view on this has always been that one of the challenges that the founders have is when they, when they meet with folks like, like BMS, they have different perspective and different scale, if you will, right? And so your, your perspective is obviously very deep because this is, as you said earlier, this is what, what you all do for a living. And obviously your scale is, I'm going to guess, in, in the vast majority of cases, orders of magnitude greater than the average uh, startup. And so on the perspective piece, I always find like that is a great way to find a partnership because you will give real world and direct feedback on what you need, what problems need to be solved versus what are solutions looking for problems uh, and what are, you know, truly 10x better approaches versus incremental ones. What are some quick do's and don'ts in terms of how to find ways to successfully partner with BMS? Do have a really clear, crisp value proposition. Do find a way to get the fastest cycle time to prove your concept out in a way that doesn't require a huge investment or, you know, a lot of churning things around. Do realize that it's not easy to change the existing processes. So find a way to be flexible enough to work with them where you can get a sub-segment to be able to use and benefit versus it all has to be one way or the other. Don't rush into trying to get to a marriage 
do focus on demonstrating value along the way. And I think that if the product has the right fit, it will get adopted, it will get used, it will get expanded. Uh, I think if you try to rush that too early, you create these unreasonable performance expectations where you know, all the leverage is on your customer side and you have very little, it's very hard for you to overperform. So you want to kind of keep the expectations low, really kind of come in and, and over-deliver. And, and while PowerPoint is great, you have to quickly move into code and getting things up and running in an environment. That, that's the only way you can really, really prove it out. Remember, this is a, an engineering-based organization of scientists who, by definition, are, are taught to be skeptical and even in the scientific method, we we basically expect the hypothesis not to pan out and you have to prove us otherwise. And I think that works with pitches we get from startups as well. We assume that they won't meet our expectations. And so you, you kind of have to come in knowing that, that that sort of mentality is, okay, prove us wrong, that this really is a breakthrough as part of you know what you'll get in the culture. I love that. There's some wise words there. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for uh, for joining us today on the uh, A16Z BioEats World podcast. Thanks a lot, Ray. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioweetsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Bioweets World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. <laughs>